Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and I am going to welcome you today to what I believe will be one of the most fascinating episodes that we have had so far. It's a big promise, but I can tell you what we are about to speak today is going to put the facts underneath the discussions that we need to have about communication in government and the public sector. So a big promise, but let me deliver in just a few moments. But as we do each week, we start with the definition of just exactly what content communication is. So content communication is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So that's what we're talking about. But today, we are going to talk about a very, very large research project recently completed by the WPP, Government and Public Sector Group. They have gone around the world in 40 countries. They have done interviews with 240 communications practitioners in 30 countries. They've done in-depth interviews with uh qualitative interviews with 20 people, online surveys, they have done an enormous amount of work to put together the leader's report. And the person behind the leader's report is a previous guest on In Transition, and that's Sean Larkins, who's the Director of Consulting and Capability at the WPP Government and Public Sector Practice. Sean leads the practice's consulting and capability offering And he helps government and public sector organisations around the world to improve their communication functions and strategies. He's based in London, but spends most of his time on a plane travelling all over the world, be it Europe, the Middle East, and all the way through Australasia. Uh, He joins me now. And Sean, congratulations on this wonderful piece of research that is really probably for the first time giving us a sense of where communication is. across the world, government communications is across the world. Thanks, David. Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, one of the reasons that we did the research is that we we firmly believe, as you and I have discussed before, that that alongside legislation, regulation and taxation, communication is one of the four key levers of government. So it's 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 important. And government communicators don't get the the recognition and the credit for the importance of what they do. But we also did the research because we hunted high and low and we couldn't find another piece of global research into government communications. Now, the, the, the UK Government Communication Service this week has just celebrated the hundredth, the formal 100th anniversary of public communication within the UK government. So, so countries around the world have been doing communication for a century, but no one has looked at it from a, a global perspective until now. And that, I think, is just an indication of the degree to which government communication is, is under underutilised and misunderstood. And I think that's a real shame. So let's start because there is so much in this and I do really want to go through this, uh, you know, in, in quite some detail because I think it will be absolutely fascinating to our audience. But let's probably start with that first point um, that you raised in that 
the communication function in government lacks credibility. That seems to me to be a key finding from this report. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, when, when we first started doing this report, I thought I would end up talking to, to someone like you who, who knows the profession and, and, and knows what we do. And I thought I would be coming here and saying, here are the key issues that uh, Australia and New Zealand are dealing with, or here are the key issues in North America, or here are the key issues in, in Europe. And actually what we found, uh, and we were very surprised about this, that in the end, we probably spoke to more than 400, 450 people in, in, in terms of kind of qualitative interviews and quantitative research. And actually everybody came back and said that they were struggling with the five key issues. And, um, and influence is, is, is one of those, but the five key issues were trust, uh, audiences. How do we how do we engage with our audiences in a time where the media landscape is is fracturing? Uh, conversation. How do we move communication between government and the citizen from one way to two way? Capability. Have we got the right skills uh, and influence? We found that that government communication is underinvested in as a function of of, of government. Uh, we found that many government communication leaders don't report in to the boards of their organisation. They find it difficult to get access to the chief executives and their ministers. And in part, they lack influence because they don't evaluate or they're not funded to evaluate communications against policy outcomes. They evaluate most of the work against communication outputs. But the thing that I think links this all together is that first point I mentioned, which is around trust, that declining levels of trust in government have undermined the connection between those who govern and those who are governed. And we and we found that, that very few communication leaders uh, know really why there's been that hemorrhaging of, of trust between government and citizens and what to do about it. They know it's happened, uh, but they they are they are looking for guidance and help in terms of how to bridge that gap. And I think the the four that follow on from that, you know, engaging better with audiences, having a two-way conversation, making sure we've got the right skills, and making sure that we are seen as influential within government and within our organisations are the four things that will help us get to that the heart of that issue, which is why has trust fallen. Okay, so let's we will get to those the bottom four, but let's just stay with trust for for the moment because communication can probably only do so much, can't it? So there are a lot of other things that impact on this collapse in the level of trust in government. There, there are. I mean, what I would what I would say is, look, good communication can't make uh, can't turn poor policy into good policy, um, but good policy can't be implemented successfully without good communication. So is that there is that link between what a government is trying to do and how that's communicated to the public. So we found the vast majority of government communication focuses on two things. It focuses on the what we're doing and how we're doing it. And it doesn't focus on the why we are doing it. And increasingly, I think citizens want to understand the thinking behind where their leaders are taking them. And so that's a missed opportunity to talk about the why, to contextualise why we are we are implementing or why we are designing a particular policy. But trust is also, I think, low because in the, in the minds of citizens, the behaviour of politicians is indivisible uh, from the functioning of government as an organisation. So, so those of us that have spent much of our career 
within government and public sector organisations are absolutely painted with the same brush as politicians. And, and we see around the world, you know, Australia is a, is a good example, which is where we are today, that if you were to ask the average Australian to rank a whole list of professions, uh, politician <laughs> comes somewhere between a banker and a journalist. And, and as I'm sure you can imagine, that's relatively low in the, in the, in the list of kind of trust rankings. So we are, we, are, we are also held to account by the behaviour of our politicians. We're held to account by the, the degree to which governments are, are developing and implementing good policy. And trust is also predicated on the effectiveness of government services. So that we found generally trust in local government, in city level government, in state level government is higher than in federal government or national government, because people can see more easily the benefits they get from services that are close to home. And so for, for communicators, those three things are very clear. How do we, how do we advise politicians on, on the, the, the tone and the content of their, of their communication as politicians? How do we use communication to influence the effective delivery of government services? And how do we ensure that communication is there at the development of policy and isn't used, as one of our respondents said, as a bit of a car wash. So, so this particular respondent said he was sick and tired of communication being treated within government as a car wash. We've created our policy. You can see it there. It's in the, it's in the backyard. It's got three wheels. One of the tyres might be flat. It's a bit rusty. The engine doesn't work. But put it through the comms car wash, polish it up, and you'll be able to sell that as good policy, won't you? And of course, when that doesn't happen, because communication is no replacement for good policy, communication is used as the excuse for a failure of a policy rather than the policy design itself. So how then, and this is an issue that we've discussed many times over the, the 100 episodes of In Transition, it's this notion of how does communication get that seat at the table? How does it get recognised by the people who are developing policies as a lever that they can use in order to achieve the objectives of the of of the government that they serve and i think that's a challenge in virtually all organizations that we that we that we looked that we looked at as as you said a few moments ago we we talked to people in more than 40 countries and so that's probably across you know when you take into account national government and federal government and city council that's probably that's probably somewhere in the region of kind of 60 to 70 organizations and i think all of them are struggling with that we've seen some really good examples of how organizations structure to make sure that communication is seen as an as an essential function so for example looking at a, a project and uh, a project and program management approach where as soon as an issue is being developed or a policy is being issued, it's, it's accepted that communication has to be part of that table. We've seen some people out of despair um, use, uh, I suppose, more tactical approaches. So one organisation we came across, uh, they, they turned their entire communications function into a team of chuggers for the week. And for those of, of your listeners that don't know what the term chugger means, chugger is a kind of shorthand for what in the UK is called a charity mugger, almost kind of tongue in cheek. But these are the people, they, they're usually kind of young and, and very outgoing that might have, you know, a, a lanyard on that says they're from the Red Cross. And when you're going to the coffee shop or you're going to the station, they come, they come up and they talk to you about their charity and they try to get you to sign up. Um, and, you know, they're doing a great job, but it can be quite annoying. The, the, the last thing you want to do when you're rushing for the train is to, to get engaged in a conversation with someone 
uh, about development issues. But but what we we found is is in one particular organisation, the um, the communications directorate turned themselves into these kind of chuggers for the entire week. They basically loitered in reception. They had a, a hit list of their twenty key most influential internal stakeholders that they needed to educate on the impact that communication could make. And every time one of them came into reception or was in the canteen or heading for the car park, they basically accosted them and started talking to them and really wouldn't leave them alone until they had a one-to-one -one meeting, you know, promised in the diary. So, so there are, are, are different techniques that people use to make sure that communication is understood within the organisation. But for me, the starting point is the quality of the advice we give. How do we act as senior advisors? How do we how do we not just say yes to to a politician or a policymaker, but we challenge them in their thinking? And the second is around what is the quality of our evaluation? If we are as 60% of respondents to the survey are doing, if we are only evaluating on the terms of communication outputs rather than policy outcomes, then we are selling ourselves short. And that's a change that I think we need to see across the board and across the world. But generally that uh, accomplishment of the measurement of outcomes requires uh, research of some sort to be able to give you that indication. I suppose if it's a, a program of some sort and you're looking to increase the numbers, for example, you may be able to look at that. But often research is is required and often people are reluctant to invest in in research. So how how can you improve that when perhaps the resourcing is not there to be able to complete the work that you've done? Well, they seem to be they seem to be reluctant to invest in research, but also they seem to be reluctant reluctant to share that research across government. And what we what we found is we found that there were a number of of key attributes. We identified uh, ten key attributes which are set out in the report that um, that are really are I, I suppose are the are the key the top key uh, requirements of of effective government communication. And one. One of those, of course, is having access to a wide range of data sources to inform decisions. Now, quite often those data sources already exist somewhere within government or they exist somewhere outside of government and we are not looking for them. So uh, we we had conversations with a number of, of colleagues in, in government across the last couple of weeks, for example, when we've been talking about this research. Uh, and we've seen some really fantastic work going on in terms of things like road safety. Now, if you're if you're trying to evaluate the impact of a road safety campaign, then of course you can go to the police service and the ambulance service and the and the and the hospital services and find out what's happening in terms of the number of arrests for drink driving or the number of people taken to hospital because of an accident or the number of people being treated with road traffic accident injuries in hospitals now now that data already exists and and quite often we can pull at that data and we can look at cause and effect can we see a fall in in the number of of, of, of road traffic accidents that's related to the period of time when we are putting out communications. But I'm surprised that the degree to which many government communicators don't look outside their organisation for data that already exists. Yeah, that's a that's a very good advice and a very good point. And I think um, people are probably scribbling that down right now. Is you know where are those data sources that they can go and interrogate that would uh, help to give some sort of signal um, that perhaps the impact of their communications program is is working or or perhaps not working. So beyond trust, we then go to that second point around audiences and this challenge of of fragmentation. What did the 
What did the research tell you specifically about the challenges of identifying, um, reaching and influencing and engaging with audiences? Well, you and I know, and your readers will know, that there's been a fracturing of audiences over the over the the, the last ten to fifteen years, and the and the historic model of broadcast communication has been has been shattered. But but we found from the research, only twenty five percent of respondents actively tailor their messages to citizens. The vast majority of respondents struggle to move beyond uniform messaging and putting out communication to what I suppose you and I might call a general audience. Nearly half of respondents say that they lack an understanding of digital and social media. We found some respondents uh, who acknowledge that 90% of communication from their governments is broadcast only. It's what it's one way. And that's a real challenge. And it and it links back, I think, to the point that you made a few moments ago. You know, it's 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 difficult for us to to tailor communication at our audiences if we don't have enough data on audience behaviors. Um, so it absolutely comes back to that 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 research and insight element. And I think again it comes back to well, where is where can we get information that tells us more about our citizens? and more about our audiences if we haven't the funds to commission it internally within our organization. And, and if you look at an organization like Google, for example, you know, Google is, is really interesting. It's not just a search engine. It's a content provider. It's actually a communication channel. Now, in many parts of the world, one of the, 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 the most important customers for Google uh, is government communication because we communicate increasingly online, for example. But we're not asking organisations like Google about the data they have that helps us to better focus and better target our communications. Um, and I think that's a real that's a real challenge for us. Um, there's another challenge here, of course, in, in that while Nirvana for most private sector marketers is to personalise information as much as possible, of course there is a valid reason. Uh, why some government communications need to be broad brush and need to, to, to I suppose, um, um, I, I suppose need to encourage a sense of civic community. So we're in Australia at the moment. You know, when there are bushfires, for example, we want an entire community to act in the same way at the same time. So there is a balance between personalization and broad brush communication. But for that to be effective, we need to understand our audiences where they are, what they think, and how they act. And and that that kind of evidence isn't being procured within government. So in terms of uh, sort of attributing the importance of the various elements that you found, how important is this notion of understanding the audience to achieving effective and successful outcomes? Is When you're weighting these various elements, is it the most important thing? It's it's absolutely critical for me. It's it's one of the key foundations and bedrocks of of how we should be communicating with citizens. But just as an example, we as I said, we 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 talked to people in more than forty countries. We found very few governments and very few public sector organisations, for example, that had an insights hub that coordinate all of the research that's commissioned within that organisation, so that it can be shared and the importance of it can be understood. Now, if there are any organisations in the world that should have access to great citizen-focused information, it should be government and government agencies. But we keep it in our own pockets of the organisation and we don't share it. And so the problem is then we either reinvent the wheel, we're duplicating on research with very limited budgets, which is not the smartest way of operating, or 
we just work blind because we don't have the money to fill those gaps. And and I would bet you that in 80% in of organizations, most of the information you need is already there, but no one has responsibility for bringing it all together so that it's used more effectively. How do you solve that problem? Well, I think you need to start to look at what communications should be doing as a function. Um, the vast majority of people that responded to our, our survey um, are people that have journalism backgrounds. Now, media management is, of course, an important function, a very important function of government communications, but it's not the only function of government communications. And I would argue increasingly it's not the most important or impactful function in government communications. And so what you need to do is you need to start to look at all of the all of the skills that you have within government communications and you need to look afresh at how you are functioned and how you operate uh, on behalf of the entire organization. So I mentioned uh, a few moments ago that we identified 10 key attributes of high performing government communication functions. One of those of course is about access to a wide range of data to inform decision making. But the other is the, the responsibility that government communicators have for driving focus on the citizen, not just throughout communications, but throughout the entire organization. So this is a function that I think government communication teams should be taking on board. Uh, we see in a couple of instances where there are high performing teams, that's what they do. In the vast majority of teams, they don't. And I think that's a, I think that's a gap in their armor. Okay, so then moving on to to the next sort of large problem um, that you identified, the global problems. That's one of conversation. This this sense of two way communication. Uh, what did the research tell us about government's uh, preparedness to engage in two way conversation? So only thirty one percent of respondents uh, said that they see citizen citizen engagement as a priority for their government. So if, if the citizen isn't the focus of what you're doing, who is the focus? If it's not the citizen, then it's perhaps not surprising that trust levels have fallen. So only 31% see citizen engagement as a priority for their government. Only 14% of people have had any training on public engagement whatsoever. So the majority of respondents struggle to move beyond one-way conversations that represent the majority of today's government communication. And one of our respondents, said to us, this was a, a key frustration of his about how too much government communication was, was broadcast, it was, it was one way. And he said, to illustrate how limiting that is, he said, I'd like you to go home and talk to your partner tonight, but never listen to their responses. And I want you to do that for 40 days, then come back to me and tell me how quickly it is you're getting divorced. Because of course, the nature of a conversation, particularly today when we have access to the media, is, is, it is two-way. You know, if I, if I have a very bad service experience with, a, with a, an organization or a retailer, I can go online and I can, I can make my feelings very clearly known and no doubt within a, a matter of minutes or certainly within the hour, I get a response from someone in that organization apologizing or asking more detail on what was wrong and, and telling me what they're going to do about it. Now, now of course, it's difficult for governments to have that degree of, of immediate responsiveness with citizens. But increasingly, we see those countries that do high quality communications talk more about engagement and less about communication. How do we go out and understand the views and the needs of, of, of citizens? How do we listen and reflect that back, in, back into policy making? And they are very, very different techniques and skills than perhaps are found ordinarily in government communication teams. 
I think the other thing that I find slightly frustrating when we look at the research is that we do see a number of countries that are doing very, I think, brave attempts at setting up platforms for greater citizen engagement, but then not defining the role that they want citizens to play. So if I go out and talk to you as a citizen, am I trying to understand your concerns? Am I trying to understand your views on a particular policy? Am I telling you I want you to decide what decision is made for me? Am I talking to you because I want to understand how better you can access that service? So quite often we see citizen engagement as, well, we just go out and we talk and hopefully we listen a bit, but we also need to give people a, a sense of a sense of what we are asking them to do. Are we asking them to design a policy? Are we asking for their approval? Are we asking for their opinions? Um, and, and again, I think we see people struggling with that. And as I've, as I've mentioned, very few people that work in government communications have had training in citizen engagement. In many of the, the organizations that we researched and spoke to, engagement is not seen as part of communication. It's seen as part of the policy team's responsibilities. And again, I think that's a structural failing. Engagement is a core part of communication and government communicators need to be involved in that. So in terms of that, though, again, this is this notion of, of pushing communications further up the value chain into these discussions around uh, policy development and listening to the citizens to understand um, what those challenges are, what their needs are, what their problems are, and indeed seeking those views. So again, uh, how, how do we overcome that problem that if, if engagement belongs to policy and it doesn't belong to communication, how can the communicators listening to this podcast uh, close that gap or, or yeah, or cross the cross that chasm? Cross that chasm. Well, I think, well, first, firstly, I think one of the things that we found time and time again, and you and I have discussed this before, is the degree to which government communicators, someone talked about the, the tyranny of the tyranny of pace, you know, too much is is happening. There's a there's a there's a difficulty in prioritizing what we should be focusing on and how. And in that kind of tyranny of pace and, and lack of time, um, what we find is many government communication teams are, are rather inward looking into their own teams rather than engaging fully with, with policy. And, and the strongest communication functions we've seen are actually there. They're actually going actively into policy teams uh, and challenging them to, to, to bring the thoughts and the views of citizens further into the policy making. So it comes back to the point that you made a few moments ago. You know, we absolutely need to have people within government communications that are that are influential and that are engaging with policy and that where they see a very poor brief come from their policy colleagues, uh, that they are challenging that. So again, in, in the words of some of our respondents, uh, one of the respondents to the research said to me that quite often a policy team will come and say, look, we've got a, for example, we've got a, a major investment program in infrastructure and the government's spending half a billion dollars on infrastructure. So I've decided to spend two billion pounds on communication. What can two million pounds of communication buy me? You know, that's the wrong question. The question, the question they should be asking of their communications teams is if I'm spending half a billion dollars on infrastructure, here are the things that I need the citizen to understand. How can you deliver that for me? But the relationship between policy and communications is too often transactional. I've decided arbitrarily, here is a pot of money. How can you spend that for me? Without going back to the key point, which is around your objectives, what can communication do to help deliver policy objectives? Okay. That's, a, that's uh, certainly very good advice for people, I think, is to 
is to build that credibility and you know get up. And from I get there. none of this is easy. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 and I just wanted to make it very clear that look, there there are frustrations <laughs> here, and there are frustrations because, because public organisations and governments are are big are big organisations. They are they are complex. We found time and time again, people have have the right intentions. They desperately want to do this. They, they absolutely believe in the power of communication, but the bureaucracy and the structures that they work within preclude them from doing so. So I would yeah. hate your listeners to think that I'm sitting here and <laughs> criticising government communication, communicators. I am sitting here expressing my frustration at how governments communicate and how quite often the communication function isn't given the influence and the authority that it needs to do its job. So that's what I think we need to do. We need to claw back some of that influence and authority. Yeah, indeed. I think probably yeah, you're right. Some people are sitting there thinking, "Well, it's okay for him, but I'm working in the car wash." Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We've all, and we've all done it. We've all worked in the car wash. Um, <laughs> well, indeed. You know, again, I was in a car wash <laughs> only the other day. That's that is such a great way to uh, uh, to express the the work and the frustration around and and that. That tyranny of pace, I think, is another great insight is that, you know, we're so busy doing the doing that, yes, we'd love to get more involved in this, you know, strategic, important, critical thinking, um, evaluation side of it. But, um, yeah, but we're a little bit too busy doing what we're doing. Uh, but, it, but interestingly, it seems that the behavioural economists have found their way into, you know, higher up the value chain. What's your observation as to how communications teams can now work with the behavioural economics team who seem to be claiming some of this, you know, strategic uh, insight role that, that communicators perhaps felt might have been their role? Yeah, that's very that's a very interesting point, actually, David. I mean, I think I think for me, the, the behavioural economists, I think, you know, have have positioned and marketed themselves incredibly well over the last kind of five <laughs> to ten years. I mean, because they're not in, in the car wash. <laughs> well, well, I think sometimes they are not, but not always. I mean, I think I think they kind of benefit from being seen as kind of new kids on the block. You know, I think I think in some respects, okay. communication communication teams suffer because, of course, yes. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, before the internet, the big game in town was basically either media management or or advertising. It, you know, it was one, it was one or the other, and there was quite often crossover between the two. And and of course, the world that we live in now and the the context that we communicate in now are far more complex. And yet, we are still seen as the people that either are the are the, are the, are the press office that we that we prevent. Uh, a minister being on the front page if they've done something silly, or we get them on the front page if they've done something that they think is is important. And we're also seen as the people that just do some advertising. And what we do is is a, a much broader, a much more complex ecosystem of communication. And I think behavioural economists have come in without being tarnished with a, I suppose, a kind of um, a, a, an outdated idea of what they of what they do. They also talk very cogently about, you know, kind of nudge and 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 actually what we can we can we can take some simple steps and on many occasions we can but frankly the issues that we deal with uh, you know if we if we're talking about obesity if we're talking about behavior change around drink driving for example if we are talking around increasing confidence and trust in public government small nudges won't have that effect what we are doing is that we should be laying the foundations for long-term strategic programs of engagement 
Um, so I think they've come in and they've marketed themselves very well. But but I'm firmly of the belief that that while nudges on occasion are helpful, they're not the be all and the end all of the challenge that we that we have as government communicators. How would you see uh, perhaps communication and the behavioural economists working together effectively? What would be a, a good structure where they could come together as a, as a team in order to, again, address some of these wicked policy problems that government is dealing with? Well, again, if we go back to the research, one of the things that I think was very telling from the research is that when we look to organisational structures, of course, of course, people have an external communications function. And nine times out of 10, that will include media management, it will include advertising, it will include PR. Uh, they'll have an internal communications team. Uh, they will have um, very little in terms of a kind of strategic or planning function. Uh, and again, I think that's that's very that's very telling in terms of in terms of our of our influence. If we had stronger strategic and planning functions, and that we were taking a more um, leading role in coordinating communication across government, then we would be a a natural partner, if you like, for the behavior economist and the, and, the, and the nudge functions. But um, in many of the organisations that we looked at, that strategic communications function isn't isn't developed enough. Or if it or if it is there, it's kind of hidden away in 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 in. You know, we quite often use language like corporate communications, for example. Now I'm a bit of a critic of the term corporate communications because I've never completely worked out in all of my years working in government communications what exactly it means. So let's be very clear. You know, yes, we do external communications. Yes, we do internal communications. Increasingly, we need to do we need to be doing citizen engagement. But the thing that enables us to do all of those three things well in an integrated way is the need to have a strong strategy and planning function. And if we get a reputation for being people that understand and can develop and deliver strategy, then I think we will have an easier relationship with behavioural economists. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what we'll do is leave it there for this week. Uh, This is an extended interview. And I'm sure, like me, you are absolutely fascinated by this piece of research, which really does describe uh, the challenges that we are facing in government and public sector communication. But also, I think Sean's giving us a lot of great insights into some of the improvements and changes that we can make. Uh, So there is more to come. There will be part two next week. So please take the time to uh, come back next week uh, because there is more good stuff coming here uh, from Sean Larkins. But uh, again, if you do want to be go and have a look at the research, you can go to WPP.com forward slash govt practice. That's G-O-V-T-P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E. Uh, or just go to a a search engine and type in uh, the leader's report and you will pick it up there. But we'll be back next week with part two of this very special interview with Sean Larkins from the WPP Government and Public Sector Practice. But for the moment, uh, that's all for this week. Thank you so much again for your time. I really do appreciate that you do come back each week. Uh, But for this week, it's time to go and it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.